uh, Paul Vacher and Tony Prescott. And Bartha was, was describing to us an amazing project where you have this sort of massive automated data collection on uh, a very detailed anatomical level that can lay a foundation also of new insights in the brain. So, so Partha, why don't you try to give us a short summary how you ended up doing this? Um, I was uh, <clears throat> really shocked uh, to find out how little we know about the, um, how the brain is wired. That's what got me started. Um, I am trained as a theoretical physicist, and when I came into biology, I'm slowly coming to grips with the knowledge that um, we are very much limited by lack of uh, information. And we have this paradox that there is we are data rich and data poor at the same time. We have lots of data, but sometimes critical pieces are missing. Um, and uh, um, once I realized that even in the most thoroughly studied model organism, which is the rat, um, the wiring diagram of the brain at a um, scale that neuroanatomists have studied has large empirical gaps on it, in it, um, I thought I would set out to um, try to rectify that situation. But it, in some sense, it's very counterintuitive because often in neuroscience, uh, also when you talk with other neuroscientists, it's this feeling like, well, we're drowning in data. We have so much data at different scales, different species, physiology, anatomy, etc. Um, so, so how do you position that with respect to this data richness? So, so how do you not deal with this paradox? Um, um, I think the way I think about it is that we are data rich. You're quite right. There's more than half a million uh, articles being published on abstracts being published on PubMed every year. So there's a tremendous amount of information out there. Um, uh, I think this information is very heterogeneous and not really integrated. You know, um, there is no super brain that really has all the information. And so was you. <laughs> um, so yes, we are data rich in this very heterogeneous sense, lots of little bits of data. We are data poor in the sense um, in neuroscience, in compared with, let us say, in genomics, where we have um, comprehensive information about a certain scale of organization. Let's say the genome. We've got the full genome of multiple species. But uh, we can't say the same at any scale, really, of any organism for the nervous system, that, that we have the full set of information, with the exception of C. elegans, which has been kind of the you know example that people have uh, put out. Um, so for me, the uh, reconciliation is that on the one, one hand, we do have a lot of heterogeneous, unintegrated information, sometimes partial, because people have focused, uh, over-specialized on certain areas of the system. A lot of studies of the hippocampus, or a lot of studies of the visual system. Um, <clears throat> so uh, if one takes an integrated perspective and does a project where you map out, you know, as in our case, the um, whole brain circuit at, at some level of resolution. Um, yes, that's uh, generating a significant data set, um, uh, but at the same time, it's not uh, um, even at the scale of this large heterogeneous data that's out there. But given, given how you summarize its argument, you're facing two challenges in some sense, no? Because on the one hand, isn't one implication that you're saying, well, yes, we have all this data, 
but you might as well have not collected it because it's 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 not organized in the right way. Is that is that really the consequence of what you're saying? Would you agree with that? In, in, yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's one way of putting it. I think a good analogy that is certainly not new at this point is thinking about Google Earth. Um, we probably have a lot of information about geography, about you know restaurants in a particular city, and so on and so forth. But until there was a framework in on which to hang all these pieces of information, they remain disparate. So perhaps uh, this project that, that, that we've initiated, one thing that it will do is to provide a framework in which to collect this heterogeneous information. If that succeeds, then you know we will resolve the paradox to some extent. Underlying your argument, though, is another assumption, which is really interesting, because in some sense you're saying, well, the Human Genome Project was actually a great success. And I want to follow this paradigm now from neuroscience. But is that really a reasonable assumption? I wouldn't quite, you know, put it in, in those terms. Uh, I, I, I would say that, yes, it was a success, um, uh, but success as defined in certain ways, right? I think one way in which it succeeded is providing this integrative framework for pulling information together. Another way in which it succeeded was uh, it uh, helped us gain understanding of the evolution of genomes. Um, we've also gained um, information about human um, history, right? So uh, we haven't solved certain problems which were promised and you know maybe we will still solve those problems in the future, but in certain ways it has been successful. And I think in those ways is where I would you know want to borrow from the success or hope for the success. Having it, looking ahead to when you built this uh, new huge data set, uh, what's your idea about how people are going to use it? I mean, I can see sort of neuroanatomists looking at the raw data and say, "Yeah, this this fills the gap. I don't any longer need to do that experiment because I can just look at your database." But for those people that want to to draw something out of it to condense it down into some more compact understanding of the brain, what kind of tools do you think they will be able to use on this database? Well, we will try to provide um, integrated versions of the data at lower resolutions. So in the ideal world, what we should be able to provide is a probabilistic uh, map saying that if you start from point A in a reference brain um, and you were a neuron with a cell body near point A, what's the probability that you had a projection or um, you know, an, an arbor at, at point B? Um, so that sort of information integrated across the injections, uh, we will be able to provide, and um, uh, that that will then presumably help people who are trying to gain an, an understanding of the architecture of the whole brain circuit. I mean, I know that this is a nascent field in the sense that not a lot of people are trying to do that. There's more interested in um, understanding the microcircuits in a particular region of the brain. Yeah. But we do hope to provide some integrated pieces of information. Um, apart from guiding, thinking about how the system is organized and how it works, uh, my hope is that we will also get multiple species, so we will be able to address evolutionary questions. Um, previously, brain evolution has been studied largely in the context of shapes and sizes. So, you know, the cortex has grown in size, the olfactory bulb has shrunk in size and so on, but we haven't really studied it at the level of uh, what the circuits are and how they have changed, with exceptions, but, but it has been very um, 
much driven uh, by non-circuit considerations, the evolution. I don't know if you agree with me. Well, what I was wondering in that, in that respect is uh, also the, the, the incredible individual variability you might find in your data. So how, how, <coughs> how are you going to handle that, right? So um, you, you might take, let's say, a mouse or a rat or, or, or a monkey um, from, from which you get your anatomical data, but now you know that over individuals there will be an incredible dispersion of these kinds of, of projections. So how do you see yourself extracting the rules from that kind of variability? I do have a premise that uh, variability uh, will not be so large that we cannot extract um, these regularities. So going back to a comment you made during my presentation is that I do have a hypothesis in some sense, a weak hypothesis that there is something to be learned from these experiments because there is some underlying organization that is relatively conserved from individual to individual in this you know, mouse strain. Um, we will do multiple injections and multiple uh, repeats of the same injections in the same brain region. So empirically, we will hope to answer this question. I don't think it's a theoretical question. So I do have a theoretical hypothesis that the variation will be controlled enough that there is a meaningful mesocircuit. But we will try to prove it empirically. And then how many different, since the brain is continuously changing also ontogenetically, uh, so, so how many measurement points do you think you would need in a single species? We are doing it in the mouse at a single age. Um, we have not yet even started thinking about a developmental version of this. Um, one thing that I'm hoping is that, um, yes, we are running this particular experimental project in, in my lab, but um, uh, we are hoping to demonstrate that this kind of project can be done quite economically in multiple laboratories. So once that comes about, you know, I think people should be able to fill in multiple ontogenetic steps. Uh, what we are hoping to do is to take one age and then look at different mouse strains, so different genetic constructs, and see how the circuit changed at a given age. Right. So how, there's something interesting about the trajectory that you went through. So as you said earlier, you started as a theoretical physicist and, and then sort of discovering the brain, if you want, and then in some sense now becoming much more an experimentalist in some sense, yeah. but then let's say a, a large-scale anatomist or an industrial-scale uh, anatomist. And if, if I look at, the, at, at, at the way you, you present the argument, it seems to be also interesting that, that along the way you've been shedding more and more of your theoretical skin, right? Is, is that, <laughs> I do it at true? night privately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, is, that, is that fair to say? Is that no, my bedtime reading recently has been, you know, formal logic and uh, models of real computation. I mean, I, I haven't shed my theoretical interests. It's just that um, uh, I have become much more conservative than when I started in making theoretical models because I've come to realize how difficult the problems really are that we are trying to describe. And what happened to me when I was a theoretical physicist is I, you know, developed a great admiration of theory. And so I don't want to, you know, take the name lightly, so to speak. It's very interesting. So, so in some sense, what you're saying is that, that, that in this move, well, let's say the, the naive but maybe very ambitious theoretical person yeah. into now, let's say, the anatomist at the bench, you have acquired more humility towards the problems Absolutely. facing. That, that, Absolutely. That's the point. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. I, I think that these are very hard problems, and uh, um, I still hope to make some theoretical 
contributions, um, but I would like them to be in you know, solid contributions. So, so where where are, are do you think we are in terms of theories of the brain? I mean, so, uh, what what aspects of the brain do we understand well, and, and where do we need to pay attention to? Um, I think single neuron biophysics is, is a clear success story um, to the extent that uh, um, there's a well-developed uh, theoretical framework and that has got an attached experimental framework and there's a close feedback loop between the theory and experiment. Um, some other parts, I think it's piecemeal. I think certain systems in the brain are well-developed theoretically. I'm not saying that they are fully developed, but the sensory systems are relatively well-developed in that way. We have a good, at least, approach to the visual system or the auditory system. Um, also to um, uh, to a lesser extent, but also to motor systems. Um, at the peripheral levels, I think we've got good um, uh, models. Uh, what I feel is lacking is a more um, systems-level understanding of the, of the whole system. And um, I think that the theoretical work that has been done there is non-mathematical, but still legitimate theorizing. Um, and people uh, who have done that um, are perhaps not thought of as theorists because they've really thought about the system. They've articulated their thoughts, right? I would still call that theory. I mean, Darwin didn't have a single equation, right? So <laughs> um, what is the status? Um, I think that there is uh, a lot of work to be done uh, progress seems to me to be pragmatically occurring in fields which are tied into robotics. Um, insect locomotion is one area that I've followed to some extent and it seems to me to be working quite well. Um, of course, that's limited in the sense of understanding of the brain. Um, but uh, one thing that I have, one lesson that I've drawn from there is really to think about engineering theories and to think about what the system does, what's the logic that one would employ in constructing systems like that and then trying to understand whether the evolutionary uh, processes are compatible with such thinking. Is there you know, role for convergent evolution? So if I were to say in a single sentence where I see the future of theory, I would say take engineering much more seriously. I think that it's certainly been a theme that has been explored since the times of cybernetics. Um, it is perhaps... Um, being sidelined in some areas of neuroscientific theorizing, but I, I think it needs to be uh, brought more to the fore and more training is necessary in engineering disciplines of the um, some of the neuroscientific theorists. Are you, are you saying that, that, that we should give up this <clears throat> more physics-based dream of, let's say, closed-form solutions of, of the phenomena that, that we're trying to study and go more for, for let's say, open, open solutions or descriptions of these of these systems is that is that the key step there? Yeah, I think that there has been a certain limitation in the theory community, at least those of us like uh, who came from a physics background, to um, take a point of view that resembled too closely the successes of theoretical physics, and simply hoping that the same trick will work again. Um, I think that that's not working. Is, is really the evidence that there are some isolated examples like Hodgkin-Huxley equation, uh, partial differential equation describing how the action potential works uh, might lead us to believe that in general ordinary and partial differential equations are what we are looking for in terms of theoretical constructs. Um, uh, again, looking in a forward modeling perspective, observing some physical phenomena in the brain and then 
modeling with ordinary partial differential equations. Um, seems to me that that approach, uh, in spite of being very successful in one domain, has not generalized. And um, it seems to me one needs a multiplicity of theoretical frameworks. So I have coined this motto, I say, um, ontological monism and epistemological pluralism. So there is only one reality out there. We all agree. And you always win at Scrabble, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a disembodied, you know, soul that is driving my, uh, driving my brain. But at the same time, I think um, there are multiple legitimate descriptions, epistemologies, ways of theorizing, modes of theorizing. They may use different mathematical tools. And it is not true that one reduces to the other. This is an assumption people have made. So when people talk about reductionism, the discussion is a bit confused because it's not clear um, whether they're talking about physical phenomena reducing to each other. That doesn't make any sense to me because there's only one phenomenon. The question is whether theories reduce to each other. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, and I think one has to be a little more Catholic. In so you take a very Kuhnian approach here. I, I would like to, yeah, take a more Catholic approach to theorizing. Yeah. And that is definitely new for me. I mean, I did not come from a tradition where that uh, is done, although having trained as a condensed matter theorist, I was perhaps more open to it than if I were, let's say, trained in particle physics. Why do you think the mesoscopic scale is such an important scale to, to understand the brain at, as opposed to other scales? Or is it just that we haven't done enough work on that level? Yeah, I think that it is a scale at which the brain needs to be understood and a scale in which understanding is comparatively lacking. Um, uh, I'm also inspired to study this scale because it seems to be developmentally patterned, so it is in the genetic code, so to speak. Um, given that there is a juggernaut out there, which is uh, kind of genome biology, and um, we have learned, uh, certainly human knowledge has progressed in that domain. Uh, it would be great if we could link up neuroscience with that um, progress. And uh, one scale where I see that link occurring quite distinctly is at this mesoscale because the mesoscale is developmentally patterned out of the genome, or at least that would be the quote-unquote hypothesis. So the heterogeneity at the mesoscopic scale, there might be, within elements of that scale, there might be more homogeneity and then potential for what using uh, learning algorithms or developmental algorithms to, to wire up systems? Right, so the hypothesis would be that, uh, let's say, the genome patterns this mesoscale yeah. um, with environmental input, but, but let's say the genome, you know, that's understood in modern-day discussions, right? But without making those caveats, let us just say the genome patterns the mesoscale. Yeah. Then variations in the mesoscale are related to um, genomic variations then one should be able to relate those two things if one looks across species or if one looks across individuals. There could be also environmental perturbations that cause, you know, right. fluctuations at the mesoscale, but, you know, uh, the idea is that it's genomically sculpted. And then variations at a more micro scale, certainly some of that patterning is also due to, you know, rules, let's say, one neuron has to connect to another neuron. So kind of self-organization, would you hope that that would give us leverage at, at, at the smaller scale? Right. Yeah. One would expect that self-organization is playing a more important role at the smaller yeah. scale. So this is a, would be a way of separating where the developmental program is more important from where, you know, the, the learning self-organization rules are more important. But what's the metric of this metascopic scale exactly? I don't think there is a fixed 
uh, length scale that I would associate. Uh, because if you look in different parts of the brain, there are different sizes. Uh, but I would simply point to classical neuroanatomical atlases, um, where you know the sizes of regions or nuclei um, vary. If you look across the brain, um, they could get down to depending on what brain you're looking at. Um, in the mouse brain, they could get down to hundreds of microns, um, but they could also be larger, you know, millimeters. So. Do you think, though, that we, have to, that we have to refine or, or improve this definition, certainly if we want to do a comparative anatomy? Yeah, I think it has to be data-driven. I, I, I don't think there is a um, definition I can give today in advance of having gathered the data set. What I hope is, after we have data sets like this, and we already have some existence proof from the gene expression data set from the Allen Institute, that uh, um, one can maybe empirically extract these uh, correlation lengths or scales directly by looking at the data. What we can hypothesize based on neuroanatomical literature is that such scales exist. And, and you know, good guesses as to what those scales are in specific brain regions. Now, what, one thing you said earlier is that you, you felt that, uh, let's say, the genome would be controlling development at just one of these scales, while, well, let's say, these lower levels would be more uh, self-organizing. Why, yeah. why are you saying that? Um, well, it's a guess. Uh, I, I cannot articulate all my um, you know, previous knowledge that leads to the guess, but uh, um, one reason is you look at different mice, um, you get the same atlas. This is just a statement about how the community is organized in this research. If it was the case that there was tremendous environmental influence on the scale at which classical neuroanatomical atlases are organized, we would probably not be able to use atlases, right? So the very fact that we can use these atlases, to me, is some indication that uh, these are um, um, not specifically environmentally but, sculpted. But this, this could also be a bias of how we treat these phenomena, no? Like in, in psychology, it's a typical problem that okay, we moved into statistics because we cannot understand humans at an individual level. On the other hand, now in psychology, people are bumping into this, this limitation of statistical approach because actually there is not this normative person. So maybe for your atlases, you're facing a similar kind of problem. No? I would certainly agree that there is not a normative mouse brain, the platonic brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what I do believe that there's a low-dimensional manifold of, of brains, that it's not, an, not a you know, as high-dimensional a space as, let's say, the number of neurons in the brain would, would lead us to believe. Um, uh, so even though there is variability, um, and that variability could well be developmental plasticity that has environmental impact on it, in the same way that we would expect in, in, uh, in, in psychology, um, but um, I at least have a strong hypothesis that uh, um, uh, this pace of variation is quite constrained, it's, it's quite small. And um, I would also say it differs from region to region in the brain, and we will probably find that out. This is an empirical question. We will be doing these studies in multiple mice, so we will be able to look across you know, individuals and really ask the question empirically. I think that's the so way to ask your, it. 
What's your feeling then about this low dimensional manifold? And certainly if you look also across species, or even including species that do not exist anymore, I mean, what's this common template there? How, what's your feeling about this? Uh, do, so do you, do you see, would you, are you expecting to converge to say a common design template for all vertebrates, for instance? Or, uh, it's, a very intriguing, uh, it's a very intriguing, intriguing thought, right? That there are, uh, whether due to common ancestry or due to um, uh, convergent evolution, due, in some sense, selecting for the same uh, circuit because the same function has to be subserved. It's a very intriguing hypothesis, which I hope is right, that, that there are these, these common uh, design rules or templates that we will find. Um, it may not turn out to be true, but, you know, I mean, that would be the interesting hypothesis in my mind. And it's an empirical hypothesis. I wouldn't, I would say that I hope it is true because there is certainly some theoretical biases I have that are pushing me in that direction. I think the system wouldn't work otherwise. Well, given that we have a finite set of genes building the brain. Right? There you go. I mean, there, there is certainly uh, uh, some developmental rules, and I think that... Uh, um, uh, we have other examples like our musculoskeletal system that are also patterned about which we don't ask these questions, right? So is the brain really that different from all the other organs in the body um, at the level, let's say, of this mesocircuit? So your idea is, is to do a lot of the work in your own laboratory at Cold Harbor, but you're trying to get other people uh, on board this project because by the sounds of it, it, it expands uh, to include many other species, also to include uh, animals at different ages. You know, there's a huge work program here. Um, why do you think people should prioritize this as opposed to all the other things that we might be doing in the neuroscience? <laughs> well, I guess it's a you know it's a free world. People <laughs> have to choose for themselves. That's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, no. But more seriously, I think that uh, I don't know. Uh, Talking about humility, I've just come to realize that the problems are extremely hard. So I, I would like to work on areas where clearly progress can be made. Now, that can be very dangerous. One can get into the instrumental fallacy, right? But, um, it, you know, I, I, I have tried to articulate some of the arguments in the position paper that we yeah. put together that I would draw people's attention to in uh, PLOS Computational Biology um, that came out last year with the first author, uh, Jay Boland, and the last author being myself. Um, but just to, you know, try to lay out some uh, motivations, uh, one great motivation is that we are at the technological cost where this has just become doable within the funding constraints of individual laboratories. I think that's, for me, a great motivation. Um, that was not true a few years ago simply due to memory costs. Today it is doable. Yeah, um, but this is the because we can argument. So Because we can argument. <laughs> I, I think it's an important argument yeah. because there are you many... You can win elections with that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's it. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's an important argument. Uh, but the um, second argument, I think, is that uh, um, the scope of discovery, I think, is is large. Um, we simply don't have these circuits um, at, a, you know, at a very simple level. How are we going to understand how the brain works? The brain is a circuit. 
we don't have the circuit. People could argue we know certain bits and pieces of it. But that's a very simple argument, you know. Uh, one can try to refine the argument, but that's one argument. And then there's a third argument, which is this information integration that we were talking about, that, that we are battling this huge deluge of data and information, how to tie it together. Well, here's a way we could. Um, and it's clearly a project that is much bigger than something that I could handle in my laboratory. So I, I'm definitely hoping that other people will want to join in. We are very open, by the way, with our data set, um, even before publication, when the data will officially be made public, if people would like to collaborate with us at the level of data analysis, um, we're happy to do that. If people would like to learn how to do these experiments or if they're interested in setting up their own pipelines, we're also um, very happy to actually um, provide that input and expertise. Um, because I think that the realities is that we'll publish a two, three page paper, let us say, but that won't summarize what's Probably going on. Not, Things are changing in that way. However, w one thing I was wondering about now is whether you're not, not stepping a bit too easily over this challenge uh, that also Tony put in front of you, that imagine, so now we, now we have this whole federation of, of laboratories um, contributing to this pipeline and they all have their own species to work on or whatever. You will have a huge problem integrating all this data because also at some point people would like to bring in other kinds of data, physiological data, behavioral data. Do you already have a taxonomy in place to, to, to bring all that, all that information together in an integrated form? Or you think it's just that's just going to self-organize? It's work in progress. Um, people are some people are working on it. Um, I do think it has to be to some extent data-driven. And talking about theory, here is one place I think theorists really need to um, pitch in because taxonomy is really a theory about the system. Once you start dividing what the parts are and naming them, you're you've kind of made your mind up about how to divide the system and how to name them. But this is a scary thought to actually now open open the floodgates, but you don't have the buckets ready yet to catch the water. I think that uh, I think that there are some uh, starting um, efforts. Uh, so it's not as bad as it could be in other fields, because in anatomy there has been a scholarly tradition, um, and so there is certainly a um, a good head start, I would say. But you're right. I mean. It is a challenge. Um, I think that we will be helped simply by having um, unified data sets. That this, this taxonomy problem, what we want to call a region, uh, will be less important than having a coordinate where you can really say that, well, I call it A, you call it B, but we are all referring to the same objective right. artifact. And that's what will help that taxonomy problem. So what was amazing in the Human Genome Project is that there was this expectation that it would take quite some time to, to sequence human genome. And then actually some people really industrialized this whole process and it turned out it could be done just in a few years, yeah. which was astonishing, yeah. even though it's still debatable how informative all this data is. Yeah. Now, how many man years is it going to take you to, to get the data for, let's say, a single mouse um, species? How many man years are we talking about? Well, we are hoping to release a draft next fall, um, and there's about uh, now. What I mean but, but by I meant complete, right? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Everything will take infinitely long by definition. Really, <laughs> the whole brain. But I think uh, I think on the scale of 
two to three years, uh, we will have um, given existing projects. Mm -hmm. um, we will have a quote-unquote meso circuit. Okay. Um, even next people? year, we will. Um, you know, in every laboratory, order order ten people maybe. Okay. Um, but so, so you have thirty man years. You said thirty man years to to get one meso circuit of one species done. I think that's reasonable. Okay. Um, but. Uh, you know, we have defined meso circuit in a particular way. People are going to challenge that and, and sure. have arguments about it. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a doable project on a short time scale. And for yourself, I mean, is, is there going to come a point where you say, okay, I've got enough data of a sufficient quality that I now go back and be a theorist about this data? <laughs> or, uh, it's happening already. Oh, okay. You know, in, in the sense that. Uh, even when trying to interpret our very first data sets or in trying to analyze them, the problems that come up are definitely of a conceptual theoretical nature. I'll give you an example. Um, so this question came up about quantifying connection strength. And um, you often see isolated neurons in you know different parts of the brain showing up. So um, if you have hundreds or thousands or you know tens of thousands of neurons in a particular let's say region of the brain that you have injected and if one neuron shows up you know, in some other part of the brain in some sense the circuit is or doesn't have this clean organization that we theoretically started out with that it has got these like tails mm -hmm. um, how do you even think theoretically about a circuit like that what are those individual neurons doing are they artifacts of the fact that biology is not a clean engineer or was there a reason is it a feature or a bug exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but now in in, in this um, endeavor in which also your project got supported to, to go after this connectome of the brain <clears throat> there are also other uh, initiatives underway yes where people would look more at let's say what they would call them the effective connectivity of the brain uh, based on, on data sets that that are of a very different nature using different kinds of imaging techniques and so on do you expect a convergence among these different approaches or, or do you think that's just too far in the future? I have a theoretical disagreement with, uh, and I'll be very frank about this, about the term functional connectivity being used to describe what are temporal correlations. So simply because two time series are correlated, um, and this we have known for a long time, does not mean that there is a, you know, let's say anatomical connection between those two uh, those two points so I don't see any reason why there should be a quote-unquote convergence it's certainly true that the anatomical connectivity is going to drive correlations um, but I don't see the reverse right. route so the correlations are a necessary condition of the causal structure right but it's not, not the of other the anatomical way. structure and I, I would I strongly advocate calling correlations correlations mm -hmm. I think it is misleading and perhaps um, even distracting to call it connectivity okay. your database will be monosynaptic though, right? our database is really of neuronal morphology don't so, really have synapses oh okay but uh, but you'll be just looking along a single one neuron fiber and so it'll still be a problem for me if I want to know if there's a connection between A and B that might go via C. You know, well, I, I, can tell, I, I can tell there's a projection that goes into C, a projection from C into B, but I can't know from your database that those two things meet up. You know? Correct. And uh, there are other limitations to this project, namely we are not being cell type specific. 
Yeah. Uh, there are other projects which are coming about which will try to be more cell type specific and yet get you know neuroanatomical connectivity in place. Um, I regard this particular meso circuit that we are mapping out as a operationally defined, operationally because it's defined in terms of retrograde and anterograde injections and whole brain imaging um, uh, object, um, but there will be missing pieces of information that will then have to be layered onto this um, thing. More projects. And now, also in your in your presentation, also in, in your work, you have been spending quite some time to look at gene expression patterns in the brain. Yeah. And do you see that as, as giving you leverage in understanding these anatomical pathways that you're trying to reveal right now? Or do you see these really as, as separate databases as well? No, I see the connection that they are both indicating a mesostructure, so to speak. You know, they are getting, at, getting us objectively at this intermediate length scale that is there in neuroanatomy. The gene expression data sets are probably giving us indirectly information about cell types. Um, I don't think they are directly telling us about connections. Um, but uh, yes, they are definitely connected. So within this gene expression data you showed, there was something very puzzling because anatomically, at least if I listen to an anatomist, I'm not an anatomist myself, it would always tell you, look, cortex, relatively uniform, well-structured, modular, etc. Uh, and if you go to subcortical areas, things get more messy. It's more variable, heterogeneous, and so on. Right? Mm. And if I, if I look at your gene expression data, so you made the point, if you have less genes expressed at the subcortical levels than at the cortical level. So, so what do you make of this apparent uh, contradiction? I actually think it's the other way around. I mean, I think the subcortical structures are more homogeneously structured and more carefully sculpted than, than the... No, no, you will have much more interspersion of cell populations, also the kind of transmitter systems... Correct, so they are more... Yeah, I see what you're saying. They, they are, it, it's more messy mm -hmm. in the sense that the modules are not well separated, mm -hmm. but uh, it may be less variable. So, um, uh, yes, it is messy. It will be messy for us to disentangle, but uh, it will be less variable, I think, from animal to animal. So sometimes what you're saying is maybe cortex is so neatly organized because there are just more genes being expressed there to keep that clean structure in place, while you would have then less genes expressed subcortically, leading to more of a dispersion of how these cells actually anchor themselves in the substrate and so on. Is that how I interpret, should interpret what you're saying? That's an interesting hypothesis. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, a cortex is not transnationally homogeneous, as we know from Broadman areas in the gene expression pattern certainly show that there are different um, cortical uh, mm -hmm. structures. Cool. So look, I have two questions to, to finish up. So um, if we had to um, define the partha law of, of science, right, of our, our attempts to understand the brain, what, what would be this parthamitra law of, <laughs> of investigation and understanding? What's the law we should adhere to? Law. Well, I, I, I uh, made my aphorism, right? Uh, there's one reality got multiple theoretical approaches. I think we have to be uh, open-minded about um, uh, disciplines. And this sounds like a truism, but, uh, and it sounds really, uh, you know, um, something that people say as a slogan. But I really think that uh, we need to educate ourselves in different disciplines, like engineering disciplines or Neuroscientists need to learn more about population biology and evolution and so on and so forth. Perfect. And then 
So, so if I go visit you again in Cold Spring Harbor uh, five years from now, I'm going to say, okay, there's this one prediction you gave to me today, and today I'm going to check whether it's true or, or not. What's this one prediction you're willing to stick your neck out today? Well, that's a very tough one. <laughs> Come on, you're a tough guy. Um, I guess this notion that the meso circuit is genetically wired and that uh, that uh, genetic polymorphisms will uh, cause alterations in the mesocircuitry that may be correlated with neuropsychiatric disorders, which are also, you know, have genetic predispositions. That's for me, especially the affective systems that are related to emotional behaviors. That for me is sort of the, um, I don't know if it's a prediction, but uh, that's a story that I hope in five years to really understand and gain insight into our behaviors. Wonderful. Parthamitra, thank you very much. Thank you.